says in here, we do not have a monopoly on God. But what for me, I, I can say is, what for me is true is this. For me, I need something very simple. And the simpler it is, the better it is. Because one of the things that I have had great difficulties with is making decisions. And if I have to make a decision, like one from column A or one from column B, whatever it is, I'm gonna get paralyzed by that decision. And what I will generally do is ask another person what they think I should do. They'll tell me I'll do that and then I'll resent the hell out of them. So what this does for me is it makes it simple so that I have a solution. We've talked about the fellowship. We've talked about the value of the fellowship. This is key to this. Why is it key to this? The reason that it's key to this is I have nowhere else to go, but, <clears throat> excuse me, but here, where the language of the heart is, is both spoken and understood. I have very, very dear friends of mine that I have had for many, many years, many years. I love them and they love me. But if I came to them and I said to them, I'm having fear, I'm having angst, I'm having trepidations, they really don't understand that. Everything in their life is just very cerebral. What do you mean you're having fear? What are you afraid of? You cannot make them understand what these feelings are and why for the 66 years that I've been on earth have I been eating over these feelings. You just cannot make them understand that because it's like trying to teach a fox how to speak zebra. It just cannot be done. And so this program gives me an opportunity to come to the fellowship and have a place where the language of the heart is both spoken and it's understood that I have a place to go because all of my life I have felt different then, not the same as. I have felt like a square hole trying to be pounded into a round situation, a round peg being shoved into a square hole. And when I came here, it didn't hit me at once, but eventually what happened was I learned that those feelings, those thoughts, those behaviors around food that I believe were unique and secret unto me were not. And so it gave me comfort to know I'm not alone. And when you can feel, if you're me, if you can feel like you're not alone, that's a wonderful feeling. Because from the time I was a child, five, six, seven years old, I didn't know anyone who I could relate to on this level. My mother was a compulsive overeater, my father was a compulsive overeater, but it was nothing that we really talked about. We only talked about things as it related to willpower and maybe not having cake in the house or not having ice cream in the house. And that was our solution to everything. So we would go out and eat it. We would eat it you know, from some other direction. So when I come in here, and I can share and listen to you sharing about these experiences, it gives me tremendous comfort. I don't, have to, I don't have to think that there's no hope for me. There's lots and lots of hope. And I get that through you guys. I get it through God, but often when God can't come, 
he sends people. And in your case, many times he has sent you. The language of the heart is very, very important. Now, we're going to kind of cut down on the review today because we have an enormous amount of history to talk about, because what we are gonna be doing this morning after the first paragraph is we are gonna be talking about probably the most significant event in the history of recovery as we know it today. So let's get started. I know normally we take more of a review, I, I, you know, but let's get down to page 25. And let's go to the last paragraph on page 25. And it says, very simple, if you are as seriously alcoholic as we were, notice that it says were, not are. It says were, even though they're still alcoholics, the people that were writing the book were in a recovered state, meaning they were not currently at the mercy of their mental twist and their physical allergy. They were recovered, and so for them, they were not as seriously alcoholic. Maybe that's not the great choice of words, but the reason that I'm pointing out the word were is they were not currently drinking at the time that the chapter was being written. That's significant. We believe there is no middle of the road solution. Now again, when we see this middle of the road solution, we need to remember that this is lights on, lights off, pregnant, not pregnant, live or dead. You're either in recovery or you're in the disease and there's no middle ground. There's no middle ground there. I know we don't want to think in terms of black and white sometimes, but this is very black and white as an issue and it cannot be avoided as such. It is a black and white issue. You are either in the food or you are not in the food. <clears throat> there is no middle ground. So if you're wrestling with some ingredients or you're wrestling with some foods that you're struggling giving up or you're not quite sure, you know, you really need to get serious with yourself and have a talk with your sponsor because this is something that will trip us up. Remember that the disease is progressive. It gets worse over time. So that little amount of food that you may be dabbling in or that little amount of sugar that you may be dabbling in will come back to bite our rear ends. Trust me on that one. We were in a position where life was becoming impossible. Now my life becomes impossible in the food. Let me just share this with you quickly because I know we have a lot to talk about this morning. Yesterday and every Friday, I take whatever time it takes to take care of my business in terms of sending out billing, in terms of paying whatever bills came in during the week. I write checks. Yes, I'm old fashioned. I write checks still and I have checkbooks and all that stuff. I don't, you know, transfer online really at all. I write the checks, whatever it is. And when I go to the post office on Friday and I go to the bank and I make a deposit and I go to the post office and I send out whatever I need to send out, there is a part of me that says to God, thank you very, very much. Because for years and years and years of my life, I couldn't function as a person. I couldn't pay my bills. I couldn't discipline myself to do any type of task. 
I had no discipline. I had no structure to my life whatsoever. I just lived like an ostrich. I buried my head in the sand, hoping no one would see me, that I could become invisible physically, that no one would look at me. And I just lived the life of a dysfunctional, compulsive overeater, and nothing in my life worked. And today, luckily, thankfully, great, oh, I'm so grateful, I have a life that works. And this is something that I'm very, very in awe of because it is only through God, it is only through the working of these steps that any of this is possible. And if we, if we had passed into the region from which there is no return through human aid, we had but two alternatives. Notice he doesn't say there's three alternatives, five alternatives, there's two. One was to go on to the bitter end, blotting out the consciousness of, the, of our intolerable situation as best we could, and the other to accept spiritual help. This we did because we honestly wanted to and were willing to make the effort. And how do I show that I'm willing to make the effort? I work the steps. There's a lot of people that have called me through the years, and I'm sure some of you have gotten these phone calls as well. I'll get a phone call from somebody, and they express a tremendous amount of verbal willingness. And they go on and on with their tale of woe and what the eating did to them and how they don't want to live in the disease anymore. And I give them something to do. And what I give them to do is I give them the assignment of writing out their food history. In other words, I want to know what your experience with the disease is. I want to know about you. I want to know what diets were you on. You don't have to remember every one of them, but I want a, a basic idea of how did you get to OA? What were your problems with food? What were your problems with weight? How did this disease manifest itself in your life that brought you to the door of OA? And in so many cases, more than I care to think about, I never hear from those people again. I just never hear from them again because the minute I actually give them something to do, it becomes something that they shy away from. And that's just an unfortunate, un fortunate situation uh, for OA as a whole and also for them as individuals. So it becomes, it becomes sad. It becomes very, very sad. Okay. This morning, we are going to talk about the most significant piece of history as it relates to our program of recovery ever. And it is an amazing piece of history. It is an astounding piece of history, and it is something that I think is worth delving into. What we are going to look at this morning, again, is we are going to look at the history of the solution. See, we know the disease from Dr. Silkworth. Dr. Silkworth, in an unscientific, not medically backed way, came to a conclusion through observation. And if you remember when we went through Dr. Silkworth's opinion, I explained to you at that time, if you were around, that was when we were still on the phone, 
I explained that Dr. Silkworth didn't want his name in this book. He was afraid that they would run him out of the medical profession because his theory was untested scientifically. It was just a gut theory like we all have. He turned out to be right. And what his theory was is, is that we have an allergy to alcohol or an allergy to our alcoholic foods. And that allergy is an unnatural, adverse, abnormal condition that in my body, certain foods will create an actual physical craving for more of the same. In, a, in the body of my friends, the people that I hang with, when they eat a meal, they get all the food they want every time they sit down to a meal. And if they're done eating halfway through the meal and they don't want any more food, they just stop. And they don't want any more and they're ready to have a conversation. In my body, the more French fries I eat, the more I want. The more I want, the more I eat, the more I eat, the more I want, and it's just endless. And I could never figure out why. Why is it that other people can eat half of this or half of that or split a hamburger and each one takes a half a hamburger and neither finishes his half? What was wrong with me, people would say to me. They would ask me as a child, what the heck is wrong with you? Why is it that you have to eat so much? What on earth are you doing? What is wrong with you, people would say. And I never had an answer to their question of what was wrong with me. Well, there's nothing wrong with me. What is different about me is I have a twist of the mind and an allergy of the body that makes it impossible for me to stop when I want to or stay stopped now that I want to. And that's what's different about me. There's nothing wrong with me at all. But this morning, we are going to talk about the emanation point of the, of the recovery. And what we're gonna do is on page 26, and I have some ancillary material that I'm gonna bring in. I want to, to look at the paragraph that starts on page 26 with a certain American businessman. Now this certain American businessman was Roland Hazard. And Roland Hazard was a very wealthy industrialist. His family had been in the United States since the 1600s. And they came here and they started a company called Burlington Mills. And if you've, <coughs> excuse me, if you, hold on one second. If you've ever walked on carpeting in your life, you've probably walked on Burlington carpeting. And they also were major stockholders in a company that is still traded on the New York Stock Exchange today, and it is called Allied Chemical. And the reason that I bring this out, that they were so wealthy, is I want us to understand this morning that the money was no object to this man, okay? That, that plays a part in the story. So Roland Hazard is this man. And Roland Hazard sequestered himself on a Caribbean island. And he sequestered himself around 1928, 29. He sequestered himself on this Caribbean island. 
And the quartermaster was instructed never to bring him liquor. And he never did. He never brought him any liquor. And there was no booze. So he remained bone dry for about one year. And when he got off the Caribbean island, the first place that the boat took him to was Miami, Florida. And once he got to Miami, well, you could write the rest of the story yourself. There were bars and liquor stores and saloons and inns and everything else. And within a very short period of time, I'm not talking days or weeks, I'm talking minutes, I'm talking minutes here, Roland Hazard was as drunk as he had ever been in his life because of the progression of the disease. And when he could get his hands on the liquor and he had been bone dry for a year, thinking that this would relieve his condition, of course we know that it did not. And we're gonna study more about that in the next chapter. But Roland Hazard was definitely an alcoholic and he was a low, low bottom alcoholic as well. Around the time of 1931, Roland Hazard decided that he was going to attempt to avail himself of the fledgling profession of psychiatry. You see, we sometimes think that psychiatry has been around for a long, long time. It indeed has not. It's not even really a hundred years old at this point. And Roland sought out the services of the number one psychiatrist, the head man, the top guy in the field, and his name was Sigmund Freud. And Roland sought out the services of Sigmund Freud, but Freud wasn't taking on any new patients. And Roland asked Freud, who's the number two man? And he said, Adler. And Adler wasn't taking on any new patients. And in 1931, when, asked, when, when Roland asked Adler, who was the number three man in the profession, Adler told him that in Switzerland, there was a guy named Jung. J-U-N-G is pronounced Jung, not Jung or Jung, but Jung, Carl Jung. And from 1931 to 1932, Carl Jung, analyzed Roland and worked with Roland. He was a psychiatrist too. He worked with Roland and for the year that Roland was in his care, there was no booze on the compound. So Roland stayed sober for the entire year from 31 to 32. He stayed sober and Jung psychoanalyzed him and he, he analyzed him and he diagnosed him completely wrong. And he says, you know, you're maybe depression or maybe, you know, it's an anxiety thing or blah, blah, blah. He never really came up with a diagnosis of what was staring him in the face because at that time they didn't know. They just didn't know. Jung didn't know about the physical allergy and Jung didn't know about the twist of the mind. And Jung didn't know any more about alcoholism than Roland did. So Jung misdiagnosed him. And he said to him at the end of the year in 1932, you're ready to go back to the United States. I've done all I can for you. Now, Roland, on the, you don't just go from Switzerland to New York. You have to go to Paris first. And he goes to Paris. And while in Paris, he's there maybe five minutes. And who does he see? He sees two very good friends of his parents. And 
they say to him, Roland, my boy, it's so wonderful to see you. What are you doing in Paris? And he explains to them about his quest to seek out and achieve sobriety. And he tells them that he's been sober for a year and he's been under the care of Dr. Jung. So how do they celebrate? What do they do? They order a bottle of the best champagne that France has to offer and they are drinking this champagne and they are absolutely watching Roland go under the table drunk. Roland can't even stand up. He is so soused. Roland goes back to Dr. Jung. He goes back to Jung's compound and Dr. Jung says to him, my, 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 I have misdiagnosed you. You are an alcoholic and I have not really been able to put my finger on that, but it appears to me that not only are you an alcoholic, but there's not anything we can do for you you're probably going to die. Now, this is significant. Is it odd or is it God that Roland didn't come under the care of Sigmund Freud? Because Freud believed that all solution lie within the cerebral. And Adler, his protege, number one protege of, of uh, Freud was Adler. Adler believed all solution lie within the cerebral. And if he had gotten to those people, we would be in big trouble. I know I wouldn't be in trouble. I'd be dead. And I'd be in a darn piano case in Chicago in Waldheim Jewish Cemetery. And that's where I'd be right now instead of here with you. So Roland got to Jung and Roland got to Jung and Jung said, well, I'll let him describe it here. He said, here and there, a vital spiritual experience can change can change the way a person feels, thinks, and acts. So with this in mind, with this background in mind, and then we're gonna continue on with how the solution meets the problem this morning, but let's take a look back at the text of the book on page 26, and with what I've just told you in mind, telling you the story, let's look at what we have. A certain American businessman had ability, good sense, and high character. For years, he had floundered from one sanitarium to another. Roland went to different hospitals, different doctors, Bellevue and some of these other hospitals. He didn't seek out towns, but he went to Bellevue. He went to different ones trying to find some way of staying sober. He had consulted the best known American psychiatrist, that is Adler and Freud. Then he had gone to Europe, Switzerland, placing himself in the care of a celebrated physician, the psychiatrist, Dr. Jung, who prescribed for him. See, Jung put him on medication. Though experience had made him skeptical, he finished his treatment with unusual confidence. He had stayed sober the entire year, just as he had the year that he was on the island. But remember that we have a mental blank spot that we talked about last week. And what is the mental blank spot? It's that built-in forgetter that we have, right? We can't remember what the food does to us. We can only focus in on what the food does for us. So it becomes very critical 
for us to have sponsors because what is one of the jobs of the sponsors is to point out the obvious that every time I walk down Main Street, I fall into a hole. Maybe it's time I walk down a different street. But Roland had confidence. And why did he have confidence? Because he had a year behind him and he was confident that this time would be different. Does that sound like me being on a diet where I lose X amount of pounds and I think, wow, I've got this now. I've kind of got this down now. Now that I've gone on the tomato juice diet and I've lost X amount of pounds, I can go out and have some cake, right? Wrong, wrong. The disease is permanent, progressive, and fatal. His physician and mental condition were unusually good. You see, when you got Roland sobered up, he was young and strong and everything was working just the way it was supposed to. Above all, he believed that he had acquired such a profound knowledge of the inner workings of his mind and its hidden springs that relapse was unthinkable. And how many people, including me on the line this morning, have lost a weight or we've stopped the anorexia, or we've stopped the bulimia for periods of time, and we think relapse is unthinkable. And we're gonna call ourselves to uh, go to chapter three, uh, probably not next week, but the week after. And what we're gonna see in chapter three are examples of people who had long-term sobriety and went back to drinking and one of them is gonna die and a couple of them are gonna end up in asylums and they're gonna end up in not so nice places because the disease is permanent, progressive, and it's fatal. So we're gonna keep that in mind, okay? Nevertheless, he was drunk in a short time. Now with everything that we've just read, how is it even possible that he's drunk in a short time? because he has a mental twist and a physical allergy that make it impossible for him to drink without getting drunk and impossible for him to stay out of the liquor now that he wants to because his mind is looking for resolution to the enormous unsettling pain of not drinking. You see, the pain of not eating is so horrible that I can't stand it and eating becomes a step up from where I am. And that has been driving me from the day that I was born. Because remember, food was never the problem. Food is the solution to the problem. If food was the problem, diets would work. If food was the problem, treatment centers would turn out 100% winners and they don't. If food was the problem, then the bariatric surgeon would have the answer. And in more cases than they'd like to admit, they don't. I'm not knocking these things. These are things that may work for some people, but by and large, they are not as effective as, the, as what we're gonna be talking about this morning. They are just not as effective. More baffling still, he could give himself no satisfactory explanation for his fall. Once this malady takes hold, we become a baffled lot. And as a baffled lot, we do not really understand why we do what we do. And when we come in here and somebody explains it to us, and even though we now can understand why we do what we do, 
that knowledge alone will not be sufficient to stop us from doing it. I'm not the only one here that has an abstinence date very different from the date I came in. I came in February 2nd, 1979, and my abstinence date is December 29th, 1998. Well, I had periods of abstinence, but then I would stop doing the steps and stop helping others and stop this and stop that, and I would go back into the food. And so we have no explanation for it. He had no explanation for his fall. We know why, because we know the disease. He did not. So he returned to this doctor whom he admired and asked him point blank why he could not recover. He wished above all things to regain self-control. And you see a lot of people talking about this, not only on the vision meetings in the morning, they'll mention this quite a bit, but in your face-to-face -face meetings and in your experience with OA, maybe before you got into vision for you, or maybe before you, you know, you heard some of this stuff recently on podcasts, <sighs> but there's a lot of people, maybe you were one of them, that came in here and you thought, well, you're going to come in. You're going to get the food plan, you're going to lose the weight, and then you're going to graduate and you're going to leave. Because that's what society teaches us, that there's a beginning point and then there's an end point and you leave and you go live your life. How many of us really understood coming in here that this is a way of life? And for me, and I'm just speaking strictly for me, if this is not the most important thing in my life without exception, I will end up going back into the food. So this for me has to be number one. I wanna have other things that are important. I wanna have other people that are important. I wanna have other situations that are important. But at the very core of my soul, at the very core of my existence, there must remain a priority that this has to come before anything and everything else. Otherwise, it's not that I'm gonna die. That's not the worst thing in the world that I'm gonna die. The worst thing is I will never have lived to my full potential. Whatever life I have today, whatever joy I have in my life today, whatever love I have in my life today, whatever euphoria or satisfaction I have in my life today is there because of a loving God that I got in touch with through these 12 steps and these, not these, but this way of life. There is no way of life for me that is more satisfying or better or more wonderful or more full of miracles than this way of life. One of my favorite things to do is plug the OA birthday. And I love the OA birthday. And the reason that I love it is not only is it a wonder, and I love the vision conventions in Newark as well. I love them both. I don't want you to think I love one more than the other. But the OA birthday is a wonderful, wonderful convention. And the reason that it's a wonderful convention is the people that are in charge of it take the time to make sure that the people standing up and delivering information are in recovery. And it's a wonderful convention because there's recovery there. I've been to a lot of world conventions and regional conventions where that was not always the case. But at the OA birthday, invariably, which by the way is in Los Angeles, I don't know about this year, I think 
it's going to be on Zoom, but I don't want to put my foot in my mouth, but it, it, it's as close to Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday as is logistically possible. But getting back to what one of the things I love about it is, there'll be people on Friday morning, Saturday morning, and Sunday morning that will go out to the Pacific Ocean, which is not that all that far from the LAX uh, Hilton where we have the convention. And they'll go out there and then they'll come back and they'll, oh, they'll clap their hands and they'll say, oh my God, what a miracle, what a miracle, what a miracle. Why are they saying that? They're saying that because they saw the sun come up over the ocean, which is a beautiful sight and it's great, that's fantastic. The real miracle at the OA birthday is not bad. See, a miracle, and don't tell anyone I told you this. See, keep this to yourself. I don't want you telling this to anybody because I don't want them to get mad at me. So don't tell. But the real miracle is in the lobby of the hotel. And it's in the rooms where the sessions are going on. And it's in the hotel rooms of people just getting up. And here's what the real miracle is. Now, you remember, you agreed not to tell anybody. The real miracle at the OA birthday is that there are compulsive overeaters in Los Angeles who are not compulsively overeating at the moment, and they are happy in their release. That's the miracle. Just don't tell anybody, okay? They are compulsive overeaters, which means they are biologically mandated. They are hardwired to eat themselves to death. They have an allergy of the body, which makes it impossible to stop once they've started. And they have a twist of the mind, which makes it impossible for them to stay stopped because of the, the pain that occurs. Restless, irritable, and discontent, throw in scared to death, jealous, angry, unit, regretful, raging against an unchangeable past, what have you. The pain of not eating is too much for them to bear and food becomes a step up from where they are. So even if the OA birthday is on Zoom this year, make sure you avail yourself of it by subscribing and attending as many sessions as you can. It is a wonderful convention. It is a, it is a miracle. It, is, it being the convention is a miracle in and of itself and the vision convention uh, every other year. But the OA birthday is annually. The other one is semi-annual. Okay, enough of the commercial. Let's move on. He had no control. Oh, wait, sorry. He, he wished above all things to regain self-control. He seemed quite rational and well-balanced with respect to other problems. In other words, when it came to his business affairs or it came to his whatever, he seemed to be okay with those things yet he had no control whatever over alcohol. Why was this? And we know why. We know that it's because of the disease. He begged the doctor to tell him the whole truth, which the doctor didn't know. And he got it. He knew the solution. He didn't know the problem. Jung didn't know about the allergy of the body. Jung didn't know about the twist of the mind. He didn't know those things. He only, well, I'll let the book tell you. In the doctor's judgment, he was utterly hopeless. You see, prior to these events, there had never been anybody. And I want to make this very clear. This is something I want you to know. Prior to this, nobody that we know of recovered from alcoholism. 
there were dry drunks, but there were no recovered drunks. And I'll get to that in a second. Nobody had ever laid eyes on an alcoholic who had completely stopped drinking and was happy about it. There were heavy drinkers and there were moderate drinkers who turned into teetotalers. That happened. And you see people all the time. They go to college, they're in their late teens, 20s, they're using drugs, they're getting drunk all the time. Then they catch a, a wife or they catch a husband, they start raising some kids, they start going to church maybe, they start going to synagogue, whatever they do, and they stop and they think, well, I was an alcoholic and I stopped, why can't you? No, they were never alcoholics. They were heavy drinkers. And I know my, one of my friends in New Jersey she talks about this all the time, that when she was in her 20s, she used drugs all the time. When she was in her 20s, she drank liquor all the time. Now she doesn't use those things anymore, and she doesn't need to go to meetings anymore. She doesn't need to go to meetings for that, but she can't avoid going to the meetings for the food because she is a compulsive overeater, but she's not an alcoholic, and she's not a drug addict. So there is a vast difference in our behaviors. He begged the doctor to tell him the whole truth and he got it in the doctor's judgment. He was utterly hopeless. Again, there had never been a recovery. He could never regain his position in society and he would have to place himself under lock and key or hire a bodyguard if he expected to live long. That was the great physician's opinion. And of course it was the great physician's opinion because nobody had ever put together the problem and the solution. But the big difference between what Jung is gonna impart on Roland and what Freud and Adler would have imparted on Roland is gonna change the history of the world forever. And it is gonna make it possible for us to sit here today and say, no matter what happens, I have a place to go, I have a book, I have a fellowship, and a program that works when I work it. Let's continue. I know we're going much faster than we normally go. We normally kind of plot along at a slower pace. But because this is a story, it's, it's a little different. That we're, So we're not going to take so much meticulous time. We're not going to take so much of a slower pace. We're going to take a quicker pace than we normally do. And as I promised you before, I'm going to introduce some ancillary information that I hope will enlighten you on this stuff and give you a deeper appreciation and understanding of the history of all of this. And I've got that right here. But this man still lives and is a free man. He can go anywhere on this earth where other free men may go without disaster, provided he remains willing to maintain a certain simple attitude. And what is that attitude? That attitude has to be that I am an alcoholic or I am a compulsive overeater and above everything else, sorry, I am going to have to work my program and I'm going to have to do what I'm going to have to do. It is absolutely at the core of my being. Nothing comes before recovery. It's priority number one. Priority number one. Okay. 
Some of our alcoholic readers may think they can do without spiritual help. Let us tell you the rest of the con conversation our friend had with his doctor. Now, this is a conversation that's going to change the world. And as we go through this conversation, what I would like you to do is notice how many times Dr. Jung is going to refer to the concept of change. And what must change in recovery? Only everything. The three primarily, primar primary, I knew I'd get the word out eventually. The three primary things that have to change in my recovery are my playgrounds, my playmates, and my play toys. I can't play at the buffet anymore. I can't play at the convenience store anymore. I can't binge with my binge buddies. I can't pretend that I haven't had dinner yet so I can have a second or a third or a fourth dinner. I can't lie about, did I have lunch? I have one lunch a day, one dinner a day, one breakfast a day, and I have my snack, and that's the end of it. There's no, there's no adding to that. There's just no um, additions to that. that we're going to point out, I'm going to point out, how many times Dr. Jung is referring to the concept of change. The doctor said you have the mind of a chronic alcoholic. Chronic means that you do it all the time. I'm a chronic compulsive overeater. I didn't just eat every once in a while. Some people are um, periodic bingers. They don't eat compulsively every day. That was not my history. I ate compulsively every single day of my life. I have never seen one single case recover where the state of mind existed to the extent that it does in you. In other words, he's telling him, I've never seen anybody recover, but he's going to give him some hope here. And let's thank God that it was Jung that he got to. Is it odd or is it God? Our friend felt as though the gates of hell had closed on him with a claim. He said to the doctor, is there no exception? Roland wants to live. He doesn't want to die. I wanted to die. I really did. I didn't know how to live. And I knew I couldn't live with the food. And I knew I couldn't live without the food. So what was the point? And I would beg God for death every day of my life. I would beg him, please, God, I don't want to live in this world. Let me go. Let me go. Let me die. I had no happiness in my life. <clears throat> this disease ransacked me. This disease vandalized me. This disease committed arson to every dream I could ever have dreamed. There was nothing in my life to look forward to except chocolate, except food. There was nothing. I was dying. I was emasculated by this disease emotionally, and I was emasculated physically by this disease from the time I was about 12 years old. I had no life whatsoever. <clears throat> our friend, I'm sorry, where that state of mind existed to the extent that it does in you, our friend thought as though the gates of hell had closed on him with a clang. He said to the doctor, is there no exception? Yes, replied the doctor, there is. Now, Freud and Adler would not have said this. Jung was saying this because he, well, I'm going to let him tell you. 
exceptions to cases such as yours have been occurring since early times. Here and there, once in a while, alcoholics have what are called vital spiritual experiences change. To me, these occurrences are phenomena. Why did he call it a phenomenon? Because he really didn't understand it himself. Why did Dr. Silkworth call the allergy a phenomenon of craving? He knew it was there. He didn't understand it. They appear to be in the nature of huge emotional displacements, change, rearrangements, change, ideas, emotions, and attitudes, which were once the guiding forces of the lives of these men are suddenly cast to one side, change, and a completely new set of conceptions, change, and motives begin to dominate them, change. In fact, I have been trying to produce such, some such emotional rearrangement change within you. With many individuals, the methods which I employed are successful, but I have never been successful with an alcoholic of your description. So many times in the conversation between Jung and Roland, Jung is telling Roland that there must be profound molecular change if Roland is to recover. Now, we cannot will ourselves to change. Don't go home after this and I'm going to change, I'm going to change, or write it on the board like a hundred times, I will change, I will change. I had a teacher in, uh, I went to Green Grammar School, and one day she caught me talking. She was really mad at me. Fifth grade, Mrs. Lamette. And she made me write on the board, the witch, she made me write on the board like a hundred times, I will not talk, I will not talk, or I will not talk in class. I will not talk in class. Totally pointless, but I'm up there going, I will not talk, I will not talk. Did that stop me? Hell no. But the bottom line is, is that I'm laughing about it because I remember it so vividly. Um, Jung was the only one that would have had this conversation with Roland. Freud and Adler would not. They would have told him, you've got to dig in your mind and you've got to use your cerebral and you've got to use what? Your willpower, right? Will is my, like, I hate will. I got willpower thrown in my face all my life. And guess what? He never did anything for me. Will, power, and the rest of the power family, they never did anything for me. It was only through God power. It was only through a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps that I was able to stand before, sit before you today and say, I'm Harlan. I've been abstinent for 21 and a half years, and I've lost a little over 500 pounds, and I have been released from my desire to eat compulsively, and I'm happy about it. That in the second step, we're taught the word sanity, not the word sobriety, not taught, but presented with. The word sanity, not sobriety or abstinence, but sanity. I'm not saying I'm completely sane, and anybody that knows me knows that I'm not completely sane. But here's what I don't do on a daily basis. I don't compulsively. Somebody's unmuted, guys. I need, one of you to, I need one of you to jump on that. I don't eat compulsively, and I'm happy about it. Let's continue. Bottom of 27. 
Upon hearing this, our friend was somewhat relieved, for he reflected that, after all, he was a good church member. This hope, however, was destroyed by the doctors telling him that while his religious convictions were very good, in his case, they did not spell the necessary vital spiritual experience. Now, why not? There's people that are listening or they're listening not on a podcast, they're here now, and they go to church or they go to synagogue and they say, well, what the heck, I'm, I'm a religious person. What the difference between the religion and the spiritual is, in the religious, we are not given to taking the actions of helping other people in exactly the same way that we do in a spiritual setting. We are not here to help the next Jewish person become a better Jewish person. We are not here to get the next Catholic person to be a better Catholic person. In most cases, we're not. Maybe there's pockets of it that I don't know about. But here is what I'm going to be charged with upon entering into OA. I'm going to have to use whatever talent I have, whether it's a lot of talent or not so much talent. I have a unique story. And if I can use that story, use my experience, use my my horrible, nightmarish childhood to help the next person, not only does it help them, and whether it helps them or not is not up to me, but it helps me because I have a disease of self. And that disease of self is going to kill me. And it's very, very important that I get out of myself. Now, I want to finish the ancillary stuff that I talked about before. Roland will eventually, and I went into this in great detail when we did Bill's story. If you want to listen to that, it's in better detail in Bill's story. But here's what basically happened. Roland Hazard will get this information from Dr. Jung of the vital spiritual experience. And he will not seek out the particular religion that he was born into, but rather something else that was in its infancy in the early 1930s. He will seek out the Oxford groupers. And the Oxford groupers were not people that were concerned with alcoholism. They were concerned with people practicing first century Christianity to the best of their ability. And they wanted to infuse an enthusiasm. That's a great word enthusiasm. Enthusiasm comes from two old Greek words, entheos from God, entheos from God, into their Christianity. And eventually, Roland will meet a man by the name of Seber Graves Jr. and a man by the name of Shep Cornell. And Shep Cornell and Seber Graves Jr. are Oxford group members in New York, where Sam Shoemaker is one of the founders of, he's not like Frank Buckman. Buckman was really, you know, the founder. But Sam Shoemaker is in New York at the Cavalry Mission, and he's the point man for the United States for the Oxford Group movement. And they are going to be Oxford groupers that are drinkers. We don't know that they were alcoholic. I can't pronounce somebody that. But they're not drinking by using the Oxford Group six-step program. Eventually, what's going to happen is Seber Graves Jr. and Roland Hazard will pass this information to Edwin Ebby Thatcher, 
And Ebby Thatcher is an alcoholic of the absolute lowest magnitude. He is an alcoholic in every way you can be an alcoholic. He is an everyday drinker. And Edwin Ebby Thatcher, because the message must have depth and weight, will pass this message to Bill Wilson. And Bill Wilson already knows about the problem being that he was under the care of Dr. William Silkworth. He knows about the allergy of the body and the twist of the mind. And he is going to put this together in a confluence. What is a confluence? It's when rivers run together to make a bigger river. The confluence of rivers, the confluence of this information is a beautiful thing. Do we know for sure that Bill Wilson is going to be the first man in history to put together through happenstance the solution and the problem? No, we do not. But what can we, what do we bet our lives on? That he is the first man in the history of the world that is going to get this information, put it together of the solution, which is the spiritual awakening or spiritual experience in his case, an awakening is, if you're gonna ask me what's the difference between the spiritual awakening and the spiritual experience, I'll answer that question now. A spiritual experience is what Bill had, sudden and profound. God came to Bill, Bill was converted, Bill never drank again. He did a lot of other crazy things, but he never drank again. A spiritual awakening is what I've had. Slow, over time, of the educational variety, and it was slow to develop. And Bill Wilson is going to take this information, and he's going to bring it to the world in a book called Alcoholics Anonymous that will be published in April of 1939. And from this book, will and the knowledge inside and the fellowship around it will spring eventually to the tune of 10,000 generations from now. Every addict, every possible thing you could be addicted to will be remedied through the working of these steps and it, uh, the emanation point of the solution came from Dr. Jung in Switzerland and a man by the name of Roland Hazard who died in 1944. And we do not know to this day the actual occurrences around his death. Now, what I would like to do, and normally we go through the big book, but what I would like to do this morning, if you will indulge me, I would like to read to you how in 1961, Bill Wilson wrote a letter to Dr. Jung concerning this, and I want to read to you Dr. Jung's letter back. A lot of times people say, well, how do you know that Ebby brought Bill the book, Varieties of Religious Experience, when Bill was in the hospital? It'll be in the letter. There's a lot of history in here, and I think it's worth going into because this history of the, of the letters that went, and then uh, Dr. Jung sadly died not long after he exchanged these letters with Bill Wilson. He died. But let's, let's take a listen. I know it's not in front of you. So I'm going to read you this letter. I'm going to read two letters, actually. 
and um, what I'm going to do is read you first the letter from Bill to, to Dr. Jung. It says, my heartfelt thanks to the, oh, wait, sorry, this is just the, the thanks to the grapevine. Okay. Um, where am I here? Oh, okay. Here we go. Sorry. Couldn't see the trees. Forest was in the way. Sorry. This is the letter to Dr. Jung that Bill Wilson wrote on January the 23rd, 1961. My dear Dr. Jung, this letter of great appreciation has been very long overdue. May I first introduce myself as Bill Wilson, a co-founder of the Society of Alcoholics Anonymous. Though you have surely heard of us, I doubt if you are aware that a certain conversation you once had with one of your patients, a Roland Hazard, back in the early 1930s did play a critical role in the founding of our fellowship. Though Roland has, a, has long since passed away, the recollection of his remarkable experience while under treatment by you has definitely become part of AA history. Our remembrance of Roland H.'s statements about his experience with you is as follows. Having exhausted other means of recovery from his alcoholism, it was about 1931 that he became your patient. I believe he remained under your care for perhaps a year. Yeah. His admiration for you was boundless, and he left you with a feeling of much confidence, and we talked about that. To his great consternation, he soon relapsed into intoxication. Certain that you were his court of last resort, he again returned to your care, then followed the conversation between you that was to become the first link in the chain of events that led to the founding of Alcoholics Anonymous. My recollection of his account of that conversation is this. First of all, you frankly told him of his hopelessness, and we covered that this morning. So far as any other further medical or psychiatric treatment might be concerned, this candid and humble statement of yours was beyond doubt the first foundation stone upon which our society has been built. Coming from you, one he so trusted and admired, the impact on him was immense. When he then asked you if there was any other hope, you told him that there might be provided he could become the subject of a spiritual or religious experience. In short, a genuine conversion. You pointed out how such an experience, if brought about, might re-motivate re him when nothing else could. <clears throat> but you did caution, though, that while such experiences had sometimes brought recovery to alcoholics, they were nevertheless comparatively rare. You recommended that he place himself in a religious atmosphere and hope for the best. Thus, I believe, was the substance of your advice. And that's what Roland did. He went into the Oxford group. Shortly thereafter, Mr. Hazard joined the Oxford group, an evangelical movement then at the height of its success in Europe, and one with what he joined in America, but the Oxford group was very successful in Europe, and, and one with which you are doubtless familiar. You will remember their large emphasis upon the principles of self-survey, confession, restitution, and the giving of oneself in service to others. They strongly stressed meditation and prayer, in these surroundings, Roland Hazard did find a conversion. 
a, a conversion experience that released him for, for the time from his compulsion to drink. Returning to New York, he became very active with the Oxford group here, then led by an Episcopal clergyman, Dr. Samuel Shoemaker. Dr. Shoemaker had been one of the founders of that movement, and his was a powerful personality that carried immense sincerity and conviction. At this time, 1932 to 1934, the Oxford group had already sobered a number of alcoholics, and Roland, feeling that he could especially identify with these sufferers, addressed himself to the help of still others. In other words, the Oxford group encouraged Roland to do what was so vitally necessary, help others. And that's what we do today, right? One of these chanced to be an old schoolmate of mine named Edwin Thatcher, Ebby. He had, he, had threatened, he had been threatened with commitment to an institution, but Mr. Hazard and another alcoholic Oxford group member, Sebergrave Jr., procured his parole and helped to bring about his sobriety. And we told you that story when we did Bill's story, how Sebergrave Jr. went to the judge to get Ebby free, and the judge was Sebergrave's senior. Is it odd or is it God? Meanwhile, I had run the course of alcoholism and was threatened with commitment myself. This is Bill. Fortunately, I had fallen under the care of a physician, Dr. William D. Silkworth, who was wonderfully capable of understanding alcoholics, but just as you had given up on Roland, so he had given me up. It was his theory that alcoholism had two components an obsession that compelled the sufferer to drink against his will and interest and some sort of metabolical difficulty, which he then called an allergy. So here's the twofold illness. The alcoholic's compulsion guaranteed that the alcoholic's drinking would go on and the allergy made sure that the sufferer would finally deteriorate, <coughs> excuse me, would he would deteriorate, <coughs> sorry, <coughs> or go insane or die. Though I had been one of the few he had thought it impossible to help me, he was finally obliged to tell me of my hopelessness. I too would have to be locked up. To me, this was a shattering blow. Just as Roland had been made ready for his conversion experience by you, so my wonderful friend, Dr. Silkworth, prepared me. Hearing of my plight, my friend Edwin Thatcher, Ebby Thatcher, came to see me at my home where I was drinking. That's that November, late November, that's when he's talking about. By then it was November, 1934. I had long marked my friend Edwin for a hopeless case, yet here he was in a very, in a very evident state of release, which could be by no means counted, accounted for by his mere association for a very short time with the Oxford group. Yet his obvious state of release as distinguished, I think I read that wrong, which was obvious that it was the result of this, sorry. A distinguished from the usual depression was tremendously convincing. Because he was a kindred sufferer, remember we said that in order for the message to have depth and weight, in order to be carried, it must have depth and weight. Bill knew that Ebby was an alcoholic. He never doubted that Ebby was an alcoholic. For the love of God, he used to say, if I ever get to be as bad as Ebby, I'm going to quit. And Ebby used to say, if I ever get to be as bad as Bill, I'm going to quit. He, 
could unquestionably communicate with me at great depth. I knew at once that I must find an experience like this or die. We have to come in and do what we need to do or we're going to die in the disease. Again, I returned to Dr. Silkworth's care where I could be once more sobered and so gain a clearer view of my friend's experience of release and of Roland Hazard's approach to him. Clear once more of alcohol, I found myself terribly depressed. This seemed to be caused by my inability to gain the slightest faith. Ebby Thatcher again visited me and repeated the simple Oxford group formulas. Soon after he left me, I became even more depressed. In utter despair, I cried out, if there is a God, will he show himself? He challenged God. There immediately came to me an illumination of enormous impact and dimension, something which I have since tried to describe in the book Alcoholics Anonymous and also in the book AA Comes of Age, basic texts which I am sending you. My release from the alcohol obsession was immediate. At once I knew I was a free man. Shortly following my experience, my friend Edwin came to the hospital, bringing me a copy of William James, The Varieties of Religious Experience. And that's why you have the stories in the back of the book. The book gave me the realization that most conversion experiences, whatever their variety, do have a common denominator of ego collapse at depth. The individual fa faces an impossible dilemma. In my case, the dilemma has been created by my compulsive drinking and the deep feeling of hopelessness had been vastly deepened still more by my alcoholic friend when he acquainted me with your verdict of hopelessness respecting Roland Hazard. In the wake of my spiritual experience, there came a vision of a society of alcoholics. Bill saw it from day one. He saw it from day one. Each identifying with and transmitting his experiences to the next chain style. And that's what we do, one to the other, see? And if each sufferer were to carry the news of the scientific hopelessness of alcoholism to each new prospect, he might be able to lay every newcomer wide open to a transforming spiritual experience. This concept proved to be the foundation of such success as Alcoholics Anonymous has since achieved. This has made conversion experience nearly every variety reported by James available on, almost, on an almost wholesale basis. Our sustained recoveries over the last quarter century number about 300,000 in America and through the world. Today, there are 8,000 AA groups. So to you, Dr. Shoemaker of the Oxford Group, to William James, and to my own physician, Dr. Silkworth, we of AA owe this tremendous benefaction, as you will now clearly see, this astonishing chain of events actually started long ago in your consulting room, and it was directly founded upon your own humility and deep perception. Very many thoughtful AAs are students of your writings because of your conviction that man is something more than intellect, emotion, and $2 worth of chemicals. You have especially endeared yourself to us. How our society grew developed its traditions for unity and structured its functioning will be seen in the text and pamphlet material that I am sending you. You will also be interested to learn in addition of the spiritual experience, many AAs report a great variety 
of psychiatric phenomena, psychic phenomena, the cumulative weight of which is very considerable. Other members have following their recovery in AA have been much helped by your practitioners. A few have been intrigued by the I Ching of your remarkable introduction to their work. Please be certain that your place is, the, is in the affection and in the history of our fellowship is like no other. Very gratefully yours, William G. Wilson. So this is Bill's letter to Dr. Jung expressing our profound gratitude for what we have here. And what we have here is the miracle. Remember we talked about the OA birthday and how people come to the birthday and they go to the Pacific? Well, this is the miracle that we are released and that we have been released happily. Let's look quickly at the letter that Dr. Jung wrote back to Bill and then we'll be done for the day. Dear Mr. Wilson, your letter has been very welcome indeed. I had no news from Roland Hazard anymore and often wondered what has been his fate. Our conversation, which he had adequately reported to you, had an aspect of which he did not know. The re he did not know. The reason that I could not tell him everything was that in those days, I had to be exceedingly careful of what I said. I had found out that I was misunderstood in every possible way. Thus was I very careful when I talked to Roland Hazard, but what I really thought about was the result of many experiences with men of his kind. His craving for alcohol was the equivalent on a low level of the spiritual thirst of our being for wholeness expressed in medieval language, the union with God. How could one formulate such an insight in a language that is not misunderstood in our days? The only right and legitimate way to such an experience is that it happens to you in reality, and it can only happen to you when you walk on a path which leads you to a higher understanding. You might be led to that goal by an act of grace or through a personal and honest contact with friends or through a higher education of the mind beyond the confines of mere rationalism. I see from your letter that Roland H. has chosen the second way, which was under, under the circumstances, obviously the best one. I am strongly convinced that the evil principle prevailing in this world leads the unrecognized spirit, spiritual need into perdition if it is not counteracted either by real religious insight or by the protective wall of human community. An ordinary man not protected by an action from above and isolated in society cannot resist the power of evil, which is called very aptly the devil but the use of such words arouses so many mistakes that one can only keep aloof from them as much as possible. There are the these are the reasons why I could not give a full and sufficient explanation to Roland Hazard, but I am risking it with you because I conclude from your very decent and honest letter that you have acquired a point of view beyond, <clears throat> excuse me, above the misleading platitudes one usually hears about alcoholism. You see, alcohol in Latin is spirituous, and you spiritus, sorry, and you use the same wonderful word for the highest religious experience as well as for the most depraving poison. The helpful formula is spiritus contra spiritum. Thanking you again for your kind letter, I remain very truly yours, Dr. Carl G. Jung. 
Now, we see this correspondence and we have to understand, or we don't have to, but we should. This is part of the fiber which binds us together. This is part of why this works. This is a huge part of everything. And the emanation point is this conversation between Jung and Roland. Roland brought the message to Ebby. Ebby brought the message to Bill. Bill brought the message to Earth. So we're done for today. Next week, we're going to pick it up on the top of page 20.